Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on The Payoff, Dave Kushner is best known for being a rock star. He was a Velvet Revolver. He won a Grammy. Now he's even an award-winning composer. Lucky for us, he's an alcoholic with 31 years of what I would call real good sobriety. And that all makes him totally relatable. Dave grew up in Hollywood and ran with some of the biggest musicians ever. But before he was able to shine himself, he had to get sober. Buckle up for a wild ride into recovery and a life beyond Dave's wildest dreams and sobriety. Heads up, this is an R-rated pod. You have been warned. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Mike is, by the way, he's the producer. He's he's listening and he can hear us. Say hi, Mike. What? Yeah. Hey, <laughs> man. <laughs> all right, Dave. Want to start? First of all, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, it, yeah, it means a lot, uh, you know, people that carry the message and, you know, your message starts with your sobriety date. So can you give that to me? Uh, February 11th, 1990. So how many, 31 years? Yep. Wow. What's it like to be sober for over three decades? Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, I got sober when I was 23. And, you know, so I remember the point where I was like, wow, I've been sober half my life. It's just the way it is now for me. I don't really, I, I don't really think about like how it is or how it isn't. It's just, it's just how I, I need to be, you know, for me. Cause I know that, you know, I, look, I, I, I know in my gut, in the deepest part of my being that if I, started drinking today, you know, after I did this podcast and was like, Oh man, it's really nice out. And I live in California and it's hot and there's some beers in my refrigerator because my wife drinks, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, I would drink those beers, then start drinking tequila, then probably throw up because I haven't had alcohol in my system for 31 years. <laughs> then I'd pass out. And then I'd wake up tomorrow and I'd need a Bloody Mary, you know, to take the edge off. And I would just be off and running, you know, just like that. No, I've never understood like casual drinking or, or, you know, social drinking. You know, for me, it was like, I'm going to drink because I'm going to get drunk. I don't necessarily want to pass out and throw up in your living room, but I want to be drunk. I want to feel the effects of the alcohol. And it was never like a, a kind of more social thing for me. So just knowing that it's just, I just know that, that I got to do certain things to, to not end up there. And you talked about the way you, f you feel and, or, or the way that you think, right? You just want to get drunk like that brain chemistry. When was the first time you got loaded? I think I the, the earliest memory was when I was 12 and or 13 and and I think I had a baseball coach who was I think he was only like 19 at the time and, and we we won like the whatever championship for little league and it was funny dude because we had yellow and white uniforms just like bad news bears and we all fucking drank beers you know like it, it was totally a scene out of bad news bears and that was I think that was my first beer but, you know, also, you know, you hear a lot about people that are sober and they're, you know, they talk about like, oh, man, the first time I had a drink, you know, I finally felt comfortable in my own skin and I finally took all the edge off of my stress in my life, whatever, stress in my life or stress of my surroundings. And that wasn't my experience. You know, I just liked the way it made me feel because everything was like shinier and fun 
more fun and, and more relaxed and whatever. But it wasn't like all of a sudden I felt like I, you know, fit in or all of a sudden I need this thing for the rest of my life to feel comfortable in my own skin. That just wasn't my experience. But you're 12 years old. You enjoy it, right? At that point in time, you don't feel like you need it. Whether, whether you ever do, we'll find out. It's like the late, what, late 70s in L.A.? What, yeah. I mean, at that point, dude, I was, I was uh, just playing baseball and football at public parks, you know, and rec leagues. And that was my whole thing, going to public uh, middle school, junior highs in the middle of Hollywood. A couple years later was when I got into punk rock, and that was like 83 or something when, you know, the punk scene kind of became, it was really like, flourishing i guess uh in in la when all the bands like black flag and circle jerks and fear and all those bands were playing like local clubs and you know then that's when it started kind of really i don't say spiraling but just got a little spiking you know, yeah it was fucking really got a lot bigger and and uh more able to try out different things and different drugs and different kind of things. So you were in bands, you're, you're a performer at a young age. Did you find yourself the drinking and the, and, and the usage kind of progress? You know, not necessarily, you know, like I, I was in bands and stuff, but I was a lot of it. I was just going to clubs, you know, and hanging out and being a little punk rocker. And so, so you're just like a fan. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I was just in the, I was just in the going to club and, and the punk rock out. scene. They weren't really fans. You, you were a part of that scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because it was like, everyone was kind of on the same level. You know what I mean? Like the bands would get off stage and then they come in the crowd and then they just hang out and everyone was kind of, you know, because it's, it's kind of the antithesis of that putting something on a pedestal kind of mentality you know it's like everyone's one and i just hung out a lot see the same group of people we're all friends we go to see bands we play in bands we drink we you know do drugs at clubs and did you feel like at any point during this time um and this is maybe before you perform uh, or start performing that you're starting to just kind of use it to feel better or you're using it to, to, to be in front of people or in relationships I, I didn't consciously do that at that point. It's so weird, man. When, when, when it really, I remember like being in like ninth grade, maybe is where I started like smoking pot and drinking more, you know, and like after school, sometimes even before school. And it was just something that was fun to do that made me feel different and relaxed. And, you know, like why, People just smoke pot or whatever. And, you know, and then the harder drugs just were so readily available in that scene. So easy to get and so inexpensive. And there were so many people at those clubs that just had stuff, whether it was acid or PCP or pills or whatever. And Hardcore. You know, yeah, coke, heroin, whatever. And so people just did it and it was just kind of like, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, and really that was the mentality. And it was fun until it wasn't, you know, it, later. But at that point it was just, you know, it was just a good time in, you know, a scene where it was acceptable. I want, so, to back, I want to backtrack a little bit. Was there alcoholism in your family at all? Like for me, it's all over my family, my dad's side. So like my mom used to give us a heads up like, hey, you know, you've got this stuff. You need to look out for it. Did you have any awareness um, of anything in your family, if it was there? Uh, the only one that really had, like, you know, I think that was really alcoholic was my grandfather, or my mom's dad, where I'd heard some stories where he was pretty, pretty gnarly. Like, you know, would they would, like, you know, there was some abuse going on and, like, hiding under the bed when he came home and, you know, that kind of stuff. If, if he came home drunk and so I knew that that existed, but 
uh, not really for my mom and dad. And it's funny. We, I remember I had this buddy, Victor, and he was from New York and he had that kind of childhood growing up, you know, like what I described that my mom had where he had the alcoholic dad and the alcoholic mom, the severely Al-Anon mom and the alcoholic yeah. dad. And, and, uh, you know, he, and the thing is, dude, the thing about being sober and <clears throat> doing certain, you know, uh, whatever, whatever road you choose to go down to, to achieve and maintain your sobriety, uh, you know, he, it was funny because we realized like, it really doesn't matter like where you come from or what your background is or what your story is. It's like, you still, it's the same feelings. It's the same, you know, it's the same alcoholism. It's the same, you know, things you use to fix it. It's like, you know, one guy could come from this background. One guy could come from the opposite background, but once you're, you know, sober or dying of alcoholism, the feelings are the same. Yeah. Is this Victor a sober guy now? Yeah. Victor's, Twenty-five years or something. When when did you start to see it getting out of control? Where there's a point, not necessarily the jumping-off point, right? Like in the literature, but even the point where, man, I'm kind of losing, I'm losing my grip on this. I think right around twenty twenty-one, where you know you you move out, you have to get a job, you're you know, I had this kind of whatever job at first and 17 and 18 working at theaters or, you know, at a donut shop or, you know, what a pizza delivery guy. I remember I ended up working at tower video in Hollywood across the street from tower records. And that's kind of when I noticed it because I, I think because my, my life was settling into a more regular thing where I, you know, worked nine to five Monday through Friday. And, I real I started to see like, oh wow, this is kind of affecting my relationship with my girlfriend at the time. Or wait, this is like in the movies where she's starting to mark the bottles of alcohol yeah. from the bar, like in the house. Yeah, which is another thing I never understood. Like having like a little bar area in your house. I'm like, what? Why are you putting all this alcohol like just out? Like, what am I supposed to do? Not drink it? Like. It's, <laughs> before you know and uh you know and i remember like putting water in the bottles you know i remember finding the marks and just like and then thinking like wow this seems kind of might be a little problematic here. yeah yeah because it's like if i see this in the movies and i remember <clears throat> i started blacking out a lot and i remember being in eighth grade and seeing this uh, reading this health book you know when you have health class yeah and that I, for some reason, that always stuck in my head that like one of the signs of, of alcoholism was blackout, and so as soon as I started blacking out a lot, you know, I, I was like, oh man, I wonder if I'm, wonder if I'm alcoholic, you know, and and that's kind of when it started, you know, and then slowly it just turned into, you know, really starting to do things that you never planned to do. That was like the beginning of the end for me was like a two year period where, you know, right from what I described to where it slowly started to get like, Oh, I don't feel good about that. Like stuff that wasn't okay with my own like moral compass. Yet. Shame, was, stuff you're ashamed of. Yeah. Yeah. The, exactly. That's, that's it. And you do stuff you're ashamed of and you kind of, for me, it was like I would do things I was ashamed of and then I'd drink behind that um, to squash those feelings and then it just became this perpetual nightmare. Um, yeah. You know, slowly but surely. Yeah, same same thing for me, exactly. You know, the last two years was just like waking up, exactly what you just described. You know, you wake up, you're like, forget what you did or, you know, I had a roommate at the time same guy that I lived in that, uh, same guy I played on that little league team with. And, you know, he would either just give me the disapproving head nod, just like, dude, yeah, <laughs> tell me what I did or, and there was a point too, you know, where I just, 
that's when I really just started drinking like every day, all day long, period. Blackout, pass out, wake up, drink, go to work, drink all day, pass out, you know, that like for the last two years, that was every day of my drinking. Were there, you know, like, were there consequences over the course of those last two years? Anything major? You know, for me, it was like, there was all, like you said, you know, there's all the shame. Like, I never woke up in the morning and thought, oh, I'm going to crash my car today, and I'm going to steal some stuff from my mom so I can <laughs> yeah. buy some stuff, and I'm going to make out with, you know, your girlfriend when you go to get something out of your car, or I'm going to, you know, cheat on my girlfriend. or Like, none of that stuff was okay for me to do according to my moral compass yet eventually I was doing that kind of stuff on a daily basis, you know, showing up late to work, lying constantly, uh, cause I was always late or didn't show up or, you know, just being late on my rent every month and not paying my bills and getting my cars impounded cause they, I didn't pay tickets and, you know, and then it just got progressively worse, like car accidents. Thank God I never, you know, hurt anyone or myself, more importantly, anyone else. But never got a DUI, but I crashed all these cars. And for some reason, like, I would get out of it somehow. And, you know, then it became like I lost a girlfriend at the time. And then I lost my license. And then I totaled my car. And, and then I, uh, one time I, I played a club on Sunset Boulevard. and. I'd been up for a couple of days on speed and drinking and, and I ran across Sunset Boulevard and I was so drunk that I just like face planted on the middle of sunset and I had my guitar in one hand and my amp in the other hand. And I just like, was like Jesus Christ pose face down on the, on the, uh, on the street and knocked out like all my, all my front teeth and shut my lip and, you know, even then, the next day, dude, I, I woke up and I went to the hospital. My, my a couple guys in my band took me to the hospital. Uh, they took me to Cedars. They stitched my lip back on. And Jeez. I just waited there. And the doctor didn't come back. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. And I just left and told my friends. I'm like, come on, let's go. And we left. And the next morning, I was trying to drink a 40-ouncer of St. Ives but my lip was so swollen, it was touching my nose and it just all dribbled down my shirt. So like I found a straw in my apartment and I was laying sideways on this couch that was really low to the ground with the St. Eyes 40 on the floor <laughs> and a straw drinking this fucking, you know, this St. Eyes cause that's what I did. Kept drinking for another six months after that. How hopeless are you feeling? Oh, I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to either put a gun in my mouth, which I would never do just because I didn't have a gun or have the guts. But you know what, man? It's just like I wanted to unzip my skin and crawl into a fucking drain pipe and just die in the drain pipe because I hated myself. That's the bottom line. You know, I hated who I had become. I hated, you know, it, it wasn't any one huge thing you know it wasn't me knocking out my teeth it wasn't me losing my girlfriend it wasn't me crashing my car it wasn't me like you know my mom would still talk to me and my dad although you could see the the kind of disapproval but there's certain people that didn't want to be around me because I was the drunk that would like that was kind of happy but I would like like if, if I saw you in a parking lot of a club and I hadn't seen you in a long time, like I would run and like tackle you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I used to do that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, dude. And then my knees are bleeding and then I'm passed out. Someone throws me in the back of a pickup truck and drives me home and whatever. So it was just a, a culmination, you know, of just like day in and day out of that, that thing you described, you know, that shame, and then more shame and then more shame and then more until, you know, I'm like, I just hated myself and I didn't see anything, any way out of it. And I was totally hopeless. Just following you and listening to you, you know, you have that first drink when you're 12 years old, you're playing baseball, 
and uh, you just won a championship. And you said you didn't do it because you felt uncomfortable in your own skin. But then you get to this point, right? This monster that's addiction um, where and you want to be anywhere but your own skin. And it's because of this stuff that you thought was a good time. Or, you know, you're, my, for me, my brain told me this was going to be so much fun. And then I, I needed this and then I deserved it. And then all of a sudden I couldn't stand anything, including myself. You know, I've heard this thing about this concept of, you know, there's like a line between heavy drinker and alcoholism and, you know, like I just wish, well, I don't think even if someone showed me the line, I would have stopped there, you know, at that point, you know, I'd just been like, okay, cool. And then just kept going. But there was a couple times in that last two year period where I did like try and stop, you know, but another thing that happened was. So I had that roommate, his name was John, and he was from my little league team. He was my best friend. And then his sister lived across the street. His sister would come over and we'd all drink together and she would take pills and stuff. And she actually OD'd in our apartment. And she got sober before I did, like six months. And she, you know, she lived uh, with the paramedics came and took her to hospital and whatever. And, you know, even then I was like, and she would come over and say like, hey, I'm going to, you know, that, you know, that I'm going to a meeting and I'd be like, Oh, all right. That's cool. <laughs> and she'd be like, come on, you should go. I'm like, just get the fuck out of my apartment. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not, why? You know, even though, you know, uh, she'd have gone or I was dying and bloated, you know, gain like 25 pounds and, busted teeth and you know I was a wreck and are you playing a lot of music at this time yeah I was actually in a band called wasted youth okay so you're you're experiencing success in your professional career but your personal life is in the toilet yeah I don't, yeah I don't know like not not huge success but yeah you know it's like a little punk rock band with some with a record out and playing shows and you know things were uh, then I got in another, oh, and then what happened was, so I'm totally hopeless, don't know what to do. All I know is like every Sunday is the worst day of my life because I know that on Monday the, the process is going to start all over again. You know that feeling like, mm-hmm. God, I just want to fucking be dead, but now I got to start my week over again doing the same shit and the same stuff that makes me ashamed of who I am and they were just totally hopeless. Are you still working at Tower yeah. Video at this time and then just playing at night? I was, yeah. And I was in a band, another band after that. What happened was, should I get sober now in the conversation? Yeah. Well, you can, keep, you can <laughs> keep going. You can keep going. Whatever way you want to take it. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> well, what happened was, I was in a band with a guy named John, a different guy, John Feldman. He's a producer. He was sober and he was while I was hitting bottom in the band you know and I would drink at rehearsal or do drugs and he'd be like dude just you just not do okay rehearsal and I'm like yeah whatever and you know but he never really got on me you know and he just did his thing and he was doing his sober thing and I was like and he was like a really cool example of you know like I'm you know you want to burn yourself out or you want to die, kill yourself. That's cool. I'm going to go and I'm going to do my thing. And he ended up being the guy I called, you know, when I was sitting on my couch with alcohol poisoning for the, you know, 20th time. And, you know, I had that moment of, I guess a moment of clarity as corny as that sounds, you know, but I was sitting on a couch trying to drink this Miller genuine draft because I knew that that's the only thing in the world that's going to make me feel better. Yeah. But at the same time, I couldn't physically keep it down because I was, you know, had alcohol poisoning and I was just sitting there like, like at this impasse of like, fuck, I can't imagine living the rest of my life like this, but I also can't imagine not drinking for the rest of my life. And I was just, you know, kind of sitting there like with this half drink beer in my lap and trying to figure out how to keep it down. And, and I ended up calling John and I just was like, dude, I, I think I want to go, you know, 
to a meeting and, and he was got he, it was great you know he was so excited like you know <laughs> he was just like yeah. really he's like okay well well let's go okay so just don't drink today i'm like i already drank he's like all right well that's okay go to sleep and then tomorrow i'm going to come pick you up and we're going to go to a meeting and i was like oh, okay cool and i went to sleep and then you know we went on this shitty little motorcycle he had and just hanging on for dear life on the back, like bloated and busted teeth and long hair and just feeling like, you know, (laughs) and, uh, then I, you know, went just immediately was like, this is what I need to do. You know? So there was no comparing yourself out when you got there. Like a lot of alcoholics, when they show up, give themselves every reason to leave. You, you were not like that. You were, you had that gift of desperation. Yeah, I was. I had the gift of desperation. I had the gift of not being that smart, as far as you know, because there's a lot of stuff in in certain these these programs and stuff where you know there's like people that are just too smart, you know, and they try and uh, find loopholes, or they try and find like you know, they try and um, you know, they doubt the process, and they kind of go, well, you know, I don't know. If, I mean, this, this book's really old and these guys, like, I don't relate to them. Whatever it is, I was like, I'm fucking done. My life sucks. And if you guys got any solutions, I'm fucking all in. If you told me to go put this funny hat on, go outside and wash your car and detail it, and then can dance in the middle of the street with your shirt off, and then come inside and eat a whole pizza, whatever it was. Yeah. I was like, I'll do it. I'll fucking, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Well, it's just such a gift, right? That sometimes you get beat yeah. your ass so bad into submission that you, you were, are willing to go to any lengths and take suggestions. And that's what happened for me. So my behavior changed and then everything in my life slowly started to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny though. Cause I remember that, that thing, like, are you willing to go to any length? And I remember hearing that early on my sobriety and I was like and I just pictured like like wait does that mean like if some guy's really in a bad way like I'm gonna have to go to a donut shop at four in the morning and meet him and have a conversation with him yeah. you know like I had these like funny warped versions of what any lengths meant but I was I didn't want what I had you know and I was willing to do whatever I I did you know that's what I did and I never drank since that first meeting, you know, I never did. did, I've been sober the whole time, you know, because I did everything they told me to do when I got there, you know, like they said, go to meetings, do this, get commitments, tell people, get phone numbers, blah, 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 show up early so you can pay attention. All these things that they told me to do, I did without question. You, know, you you go to meetings and, and you start to act different, right? You start to dry out. When do you start, this is like 1990, when do you start to feel better? Like when does your soul start to get filled? How does that change take place? Well, I'll tell you, like I, very, I remember very clearly because, you know, I still go to the same deal that I did, you know, from the beginning. I remember that I felt hopeless when I came in uh, the day before. A couple of things I remember from that early early sobriety was, one thing I remember when I came in was they said, you never have to feel as hopeless as you did the day before you got sober ever again. And I can say, in all honesty, in the last 31 years, I've never felt that hopeless and that shitty any days in the last 31 years. And I've had some tough times, but never that degree of hopelessness like like my life is just going downhill and there's nothing to do to stop it from going downhill but I remember feeling like a scumbag because of all the stuff I had done you know all that shame that those you know years of of shame piling up so it's like you know it's tricky because you come in and you're like now I just feel like a sober scumbag you know because your head tells you like you're still that guy that did all those shitty things. And so, you know, luckily at those meetings, there's a lot of tools to remedy that, 
and to deal with that, that, that feeling of feeling like a scumbag. And, you know, also, you know, like I felt hopeless, but I would get these like windows of hope every day. Like I'd get 10 minutes, like, Oh, maybe it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I'd feel kind of shitty the rest of the day. And then, you know, it'd be 15 minutes and then it'd be five minutes. And then it, you know, and that just kept slowly, you know, increasing. And the, the amount of hope that I would get, you know, sometimes it was for an hour and a half at a meeting where I wasn't thinking about my life and my shitty situation and myself and whatever. And I was just hearing stories and meeting people and just being like, Oh man, this feels good, you know, or hanging out with other sober dudes. You know, luckily I was in a band with a guy who was sober. He was in his first year. You know, and then we got a record deal and, and we got to go on tour together. And and I learned so much from that guy because he was really diligent about finding meetings and going to meetings on the road and, you know, looking shit up in the phone book and being like, all right, dude, I found a meeting. You want to go? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> Every time. He's just wired to say no. And yeah. he'd be like, all right, cool. Well, I'm going to go anyway. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll go. And that's the best part when you become wired to say yes and you start to flex that muscle. Like if I go out of town and I travel, I, I am pretty good at looking it up online, you know, when we could go in person and just, 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 I have smart feet, just go to the meeting and figure everything yeah. else out later. Cause a lot of times I've sat outside meetings and been like, I don't want to go in there. These people aren't like me. And like, it's like, just park the car yeah. and go inside and, and it changes everything. And you do that enough times, right? You've got a body of work to build on. Yeah. I love that thing, dude, smart feet, because it's like I've heard it so much, and it's just like it really is, you know, that, that contrary action. Like, look, you know, I accepted from the beginning, like, I have alcoholism, and it's this thing that lives in me that's trying to kill me, period. You know, the reason I'm talking to you today is because I don't want to die of alcoholism. You know what I mean? Like, that's why after all this time, I'm still, if someone says, Hey, you want to talk to, I got a buddy and he does podcasts and it's about, you know, sobriety and blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, otherwise I'd be like, all right, thanks. I'm good. I'm going <laughs> to go on with my life now. But I just feel like I know, like I said in the beginning, I still have this thing and this thing affects my thinking as well. You know, and it's like you perfectly described it. You know, I can be at a meeting that I go to on a regular basis. And if my head's not right, my alcoholism will tell me like, oh, you know, after the meeting, it's like, oh, you don't really fit in with those guys because those guys are all still in bands and you're not really in a band anymore. Like those guys are all like a little older than you. That's that little click. And it's like this whole dialogue about how I don't fit in with any of the little groups that are talking after the meeting. You'll take yourself out either way, either way, whichever group. Yeah. And it's like, I don't fit in there. I don't fit in there. I don't fit in there. And then I just leave and then I feel sorry for myself and then whatever. And that's why I still have to do a lot of the stuff I did in my first year that I learned to do, you know, whether it's meditation and, and stuff like that or going to meetings or helping other people. I, I still have to do that stuff. Cause I, you know, I still have alcoholism, period, you know? And so it's just that simple to me. And it's always been that simple for me. It's like my sobriety has been very pragmatic. You know, it's like, you tell me if you move that pile of stuff over to there, then you're going to feel better. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I might not move it right away, but I'm like, I pay attention. I'm like, okay, cool. Just move that over there. Yep. Okay, cool. I'm going to do it. You know, if you show up here, you're going to feel better. Okay, cool. If you do this, read this and do this, then you're going to feel better. Okay, cool. You know, and, and that's how it's been. And it's never been wrong. That's the crazy thing. All the suggestions, all the stuff always makes me feel better. It's never been like, oh, I tried that. It's fucking, it actually backfired and actually felt worse. It's never happened one time. That's why I keep doing it. You know, I remember when I was newly sober and, and someone said, hey, you want to go to a party? And I was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and they're like, come on, it's like a sober party. I'm like, that sounds horrible. You know, and 
I think I had like two months or something. And my sponsor at the time was like, Hey, let's go to, let's go to a party. And I was like, Oh God, it sounds terrible. Yeah. And I'm so afraid, you know, like how to just be around people and be social, whatever. So you shit on it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh huh. But I remember him saying to me, look, do this. Let's go. We don't have to stay long. He said, look for the most uncomfortable looking person in the room and go talk to that person. He said, look for someone that looks as uncomfortable as you are and go start talking to that person and be of service to that person by talking to them. And I was like, okay. And I tried it and it worked. You know, I saw some dude and he looked all fucking by himself and looked awkward and uncomfortable. And I started talking to that guy and then I felt better. And then he felt better. And I felt better because I made him feel better. You know what I mean? It's just like a fucking win-win. Yeah. And that's my experience in all of these things. If I'm helping someone, I'm not thinking about myself. And I'm usually, you know, and I feel better. If I give someone hope, that they don't, they, you know, they have two weeks sober. They don't know how they're going to make it through week three. And I give that person some hope and tell them like, dude, it's going to be okay, whatever. Here's what I did, you know, and then I see the light come on. Then I feel like a king. There's no better feeling. You know, there's no, I mean, I've had I've gotten nominated for an Emmy and won a Grammy and, had a number one record and all this shit, dude. And I, and I can promise you that giving someone hope that they're not going to fucking die and that they're going to be okay is a better feeling than any of those things. The, the fact of the matter is you, st you go to meetings for over 30 years or, or you stay sober for over 30 years, right? You're going to see people go out and die. Like that happens. Yeah. For sure. And dude, I grew up in Hollywood, you know, me and Slash, went to junior high and high school together. There's a lot of people. We went to school with Halel Slovak from the Chili Peppers, the, the guitar player that OD'd. We went to school with, you know, a lot of people. My best friend, Jack I. John, that I told you about, that was my roommate, that we were on the baseball Who's team. Whose sister OD'd? Or, or the guy yeah. before that? Yeah, no, that guy. Okay. And he and I were best friends until 10 years ago. Our kids went to the same school. Uh, we shared a studio at the time, and he went out of town one weekend. I saw him on a Friday, and then I got a call on a Sunday that he, you know, had an accident over to him. And that was, like, the biggest – that was, like, probably the hardest death I've had to deal with in my sobriety because, I mean, I was, you know, 44 years old. And he was my best friend since I was 13, you know, and, and we lived, we were roommates for years, like 15 years off and on. We shared a studio where we worked together. We, like I said, our kids went to school together and I was devastated. And then my mom died like right around the same time. So like, I'm, like what I was saying earlier, is like, you know, I've been through grown up stuff. What do you, you do know? when the grown up stuff happens? I mean, I'll tell you, man, that, that stuff happened. And then like, I had two kids right before that I had right before that, dude, a year before that, you know, I had two kids, my kids were one and three and my wife got cancer. She had breast cancer and she had, you know, it was like probably the toughest year of my life. Cause she had a double mastectomy. She had chemo radiation. Like she was really fucked up for a year and I had these two little kids to take care of my son was super colicky and irritable all the time and it was really hard and uh you know thank god she's all right now but you know I remember going to the meeting I remember I remember going to this meeting and just being like and sharing it was like this this crosstalk meeting where it's like a room full of guys and there's no like leader really or speaker it's just like a big conversation almost and you kind of wait till someone's finished talking and then you jump in and whatever and I remember talking at this one point I'm like had my my head the inside of my head is like a fucking circus right now you know like I can't even think straight 
you know, my wife gets mad at me cause I don't really show any emotion cause I just have my head down and I'm just like all fucking task oriented. Like, you know, I just need to get this done and I just need to, and these kids, he needs to eat and she needs this and blah, blah, blah. And me and my wife would fight a lot in that period. And then, so I felt guilty about that. This older guy in the meeting, like leaned down the row. I was sitting and he's like, you going to any morning meetings? I'm like, Oh God. And this is it, dude. This is a perfect description of alcoholism. I mean, this was like, you know, what, 10 years ago. I've been sober for a while at this point. And I, so I share in a meeting that I have a problem that I'm really like kind of falling apart here. Some guy who I respect, who has more time than me leans over and asks me if I'm going to any morning meetings. And for the rest of the meeting, I tried to figure out how to get out of going to a meeting with this guy at the end of the meeting. Cause I knew at the end of the meeting, he was going to ask me about or tell me about some morning meetings that he went to. And I was going to, and I was trying to figure out how to get out of going with him. You know what I mean? Like I asked oh, yeah. this guy suggesting help and now I'm figuring out how to take it back and not, and not accept the help. And by the end of the meeting, I was just like, dad, nothing. You know, I had no excuse. I was, and he's like, oh, I go to this blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, Why do you get so-and-so? I'm like, okay. And I went and, you know, I felt better. I started going to more meetings. Like I started going to some morning meetings and that's where I met Frank. Yeah. You my know, man, Frank, who put us like, in touch. Dude. And that's, it's like, I don't know. Everyone's got a different concept of God or Catholic God, you know, Protestant God, no God, Buddha whatever the guy with the, the ocean, the higher power, whatever it is like, you know, that's cool. I choose to call, you know, my thing, God. And it's just like a dude in the sky that looks after me, you know, that's like pulls me out of the deep end when I ask for help. That's it, you know? And, and I just believe like, you know, it's like this golden thread that's woven throughout your life. And it's just like, you know, I wouldn't be talking to you now if I wouldn't have shared that my head was like a circus and that guy leaned over and asked me to go to the morning meeting and the morning meeting is where I met Frank. And then, you know, he and I became friends. And even though he lives back in Philly, we're still friends. And then he introduced me to you and here we are. Yeah. And hopefully we're helping people. Yeah. And, and that's, that's how my whole history of my life has been especially since I got sober especially you know once I got out of my own way it all you know it all changed I have an incredible life and I don't always remember it you know (laughs) because I get so caught up in my own bullshit well I don't remember how good I have it until I you know for me it's like I'll go to a meeting and and, and I get recalibrated and I get perspective I don't I'm not programmed to think about other people. I'm not programmed to think with gratitude. I have to be around guys like you, the program and and spirituality to get my head right. I mean, my first thought is wrong. We hear it all the time, but that's how I'm wired. I mean, I got a whole body of work in drinking and using um, that speaks to that. And even in sobriety, right? When I'm, when I'm not conditioned spiritually. Yeah, dude. And, and you know, like, like I'll just tell this one quick story. Like, you know, I was in Velvet Revolver I stayed sober through the whole thing. You know, everyone else didn't at different times. And I did. And I did it through doing the same shit that I did in that first year. You know, finding meetings on the road, opening random books and reading pages and then still talking to dudes and staying current with other alcoholics and doing all the same shit. I just kept my head down and did the same thing. And you know, after that band was done, you know, I was like at this kind of impasse and like, fuck, what am I going to do? And I remember thinking like, I'm going to either like try and produce stuff, which I really had no experience doing and then, or like be a composer. And my buddy, John, the one that died, he was a composer. And I, and you know, I just asked him like, what did you, cause that's what I learned to do yeah. in the meeting. You want to learn how to be in a monogamous relationship? Go ask that guy that's in a monogamous relationship. <laughs> a thousand percent. Yeah, don't ask your fucking friend that's for fucking every girl that comes to, you know, 
And if you ask up. me about something and I don't have the answer, I guarantee I can find somebody else in the program that, that, ha that yeah. does have it. And that's how I was taught, you know, like I will do whatever I can to help you. And if I don't have experience, I'll help you find someone that does. Because mm -hmm. I never talk about my opinion because it's just bullshit. You know, it's like, I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you what, you know, I went through if it relates to what you're going through. And I'll tell you what I did and how it worked, you know? And, but, you know, I, I, I remember being at, at, at Johnny Rockets, the diner place, burger place out in LA with a few musician friends. And this guy said to me, this guy, Bob was like, Hey, I just got this job doing this, you know, for the show. It hasn't started filming yet. It's called Sons of Anarchy. And, you know, it's kind of about these bikers and it's like hell's angels meets the Sopranos and blah, blah, blah. And turns we into a about, huge hit. Yeah. And we we're talking about music and I'm like, Oh, what about if you got bands? Like, cause he was a composer and music supervisor. And so he's like, you know, so I started suggesting all these bands that I thought fit the vibe, like monster magnet and clutch. And what about this band? And he's like, and so he said, Hey, you know, if you ever, want to get together and write something, you know, let's, you know, we, you should come over. And I was, as I'm wired, I, my first thought was no yeah. fear, you know, like, totally. I'm like, listening with to you. I'm right there with you. Yeah. This guy's way better than I am. He's older. He's a better musician. I am fucking not capable of being in a room with one other person and you know yeah. I don't want to be that exposed I don't want him to find out like I'm not as good as I think I am or whatever and you know I, I I've been programmed here to, to take contrary action and I said yes and I said yeah cool man and then I made it you know time and I went over and we wrote the theme song for Sons of Anarchy like that first day you know, like I had that riff, I brought it over, we wrote the song in like a day and that was it. And that changed the trajectory of my life, you know, and now I've been working as a composer for 10 years. And it's because of that thing that I learned in those meetings to take contrary action, to say yes, when the fear tells me to say no. And that for me was the biggest example that I've had in my life of, of that contrary action working, you know, for me as a positive. I got a couple more things before I let you get on with your life. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, how do you, you know, you're mentioning, you know, I know about your career and, and the successes you've had. It's been some of the biggest bands in the world, really. And you stay sober through it all, but you stay humble. I mean, I've talked to Frank about you. I mean, and, and every, every guy that was, uh, that you spoke with that was on that meeting. I mean, how do you maintain your humility through, through all this? Uh, I don't know, man. You know, it's not, I don't think it's by virtue. I think it's just that I came into this. It was just like the, it's that golden thread. You know, it's like I knew Slash since I was a kid. We grew up together. I knew Duff because I was playing with him at the time, but he and I had become friends because we were into like the same movies and stuff. And then Matt, I just knew from around Scott. I knew because our old bands used to play together. So even when I first went and played with Velvet Revolver, it was like, I was comfortable because I knew everyone, you know, and I was, but I was also the guy that was way you know, like had nothing. I had no money. I had a job. I made six bucks an hour, you know, and these guys all had fancy cars and they were at another level. And I just, I think for me, you know, I just came in with a good cachet of sobriety. You know, when I got in Velvet Revolver, I was already like 13, 13 years sober. And I had been doing all the stuff. You know, for me, it's just like, I remember that word humility. I heard it when I was new and I was like, Oh, and I associated it with being humiliated, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember I looked it up in the, in the 
dictionary. My sponsor was big on looking shit up in the dictionary. And it said, uh, you know, being meek and being humble. And it wasn't a bad thing, you know? And for me, it was just like, I don't know, maybe I'm, I feel like I'm kind of trying to find an answer, but I don't really know. Like I, I've just always been, I've never had a huge ego about stuff. I've just not wired that way. And I, I've, you know, I know I'm good at some things and I know on paper I've had a lot of success and, and, but I don't know. Like I said, the, I had a lot of years of experience knowing that the better feeling comes from helping people yeah. rather than getting stuff. You know, because the stuff is always temporary and, and the fucking helping people is free. Yeah. You know, it's like, I have nothing. I can go to a meeting and help someone and feel better and feel like a king and still have nothing. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't fucking matter what I have, where I'm at in my life. If I'm helping people, I'm going to feel better. Dude, I, free. I always tell people at the, at, uh, you know, when I was at the end of my rope, I went to treatment um, I had some things going before that, and I get the treatment, and, and I'm one of those situations, you've heard the story before, you go to a, a halfway house afterwards, and they tell me I have to get a job, and I ended up working at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? I'm like 30-something years old, and it was the most fulfilling thing for me because I would really feel on top of the world. I had a sponsor, I, I was going to meetings all the time, and I sometimes look back at my sobriety, and I think that's the best I ever felt, four months sober, busting my ass, just being grateful to be working the drive-through window. So if I'm having trouble today, you know, I got, I yeah. got, to, I got to figure some stuff out. Yeah, uh, great, dude. I love that. You know, and it is, it's that. It's like, like I've had the same sponsor, like some dude that helps me with everything, and for like the last 28 years, same dude. He's from Jersey, Italian dude from Jersey. And I remember when, at three years sober, and I first started working with him, and he was like. He goes, man, now that you're sober, man, your job is to be of love and service. And I was like, what? And he goes, that's your job, man. You know, just be of love and service to people. And I was like, okay. And I remember I would call him and I'd be all upset. And I'd be like, oh, this fucking guy, blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, what's your job, man? <laughs> and I was like, oh, and service. And it's that thing, dude. It's like exactly what you're talking about. With four months at KFC, it's like, I'm fucking, if I can get out of my own way, put my ego aside and just think, how am I going to help this person? And if I live my life like that, and obviously I'm no saint and I, I fuck up all the time and I, you know, yell at my kids sometimes or fight with my wife and whatever. But if I can always, you know, do the work to recalibrate and go like, okay, how am I going to like right now I'm in my studio, it's in my house how am I going to walk out of this room and help my family? How yeah. am I going to be of service to whoever I run into first? Then I'm not thinking about myself and what I want to do next and what I want to get and how am I going to get it? And how am I going to get time to do fucking stare at my phone for God knows how long, like all this inane bullshit that I think is important instead of, Oh, I have that buddy of mine that just went, you know, on some job in Vancouver and he's stuck in quarantine, you know, in a 14 day quarantine. Uh, and I got to call that guy back. He's sober and he's just sitting there in the fucking room by himself. Oh yeah. I'm going to help that guy by seeing how he's doing. Cause he's just stuck in a hotel room for 14 days. That's the kind of shit where that's how I stay right side, you know, but I forget it all the time. Somebody comes into a meeting and they're just not sure, Dave. They're, they're not sure they're an alcoholic. Somebody that's listening today and they're on the fence. Now, what do you tell somebody about the life on the other side of sobriety? Or I the mean, other the other side of addiction? You know, I, I think like I think now that I've been here for a long time, like in the beginning, I was really like, oh, i got to save this person's life. You know, like really, I, it was really like a heavy thing for me. I remember I had a girlfriend and she, she was like, there's this guy and he's at the the treatment center and he's going to leave. And, you know, I gave him your number and I was like, Oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to save his life? And I realized that I've been here for so long that it's like, I can't, I can't save anyone's life. You know, like I'm not that powerful, you know, I'm not, I can help people 
I can share my experience. I can share my, my own strength and hope. And, and, you know, I'm sure I've, I've helped some people. I know I've helped some people along the way, but you know, I can't save anyone. And, uh, you know, it's like now I just, you know, I remember someone telling me like, look, cause I would get frustrated cause then I would help someone and then they keep going back out like drinking again. And then they come back and I'd help them. And I spend all this time on the phone and they go back out and then they call me and be like, can you meet me here? And I'd be like, okay. And then they wouldn't show up or whatever things. And I remember my, my buddy saying like, dude, you got to help the people that want help. Yeah. And like, you gotta, you know, you can't just keep helping the, the same dude like and that that wasn't a good really way of telling that story but the fact is is like you know I remember when I was new they would say like just real matter of fact like I don't know if I'm you know like people that were on the fence they'd be like look you want you try this for 30 days and if you don't like it we'll refund your misery that would be the greatest yeah I heard when I was new, it's just like, try it. If you think you, if you think you're alcoholic, you probably are alcoholic. If you think you have a problem, you probably do. And what's the worst that's going to happen? You might feel better if you try it for 30 days. And if not, cool. You know, what have you got to lose? Except feeling exactly the way you feel now, which is the reason why you're here. What's your you life? Know? What's your life look like if, if you're still drinking and using Oh, I'd be dead, dude, for sure. Are you asking me, like, me? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you just answered it. I mean, that's that's my I, answer, but I'm always curious to hear what people might say. exactly what I described. You know, I'd be off and running. I'd drink today. I'd throw up. I'd go out tomorrow. I'd drink a Bloody Mary just to take the edge off. I'd drink all day long, and then I'd look for some Coke so I could stay up longer, so I could drink more. And then I'd think, like, oh, I never tried ecstasy. I should get some of that. And like, You know, and I'd be shameful right away because I'm, have to tell my wife and my kids, you know, like, or hide it from them. And then what I'm driving. So then the only time I could drink is whether I'm in the house and I'm hiding it from them or I leave the house and then who knows what's going to happen. I end up in jail cause I killed someone in a drunk driving accident or I, it's like, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say like, you know, like I used to drive with fucking, and I would see three of everything. I would have to close one eye, you know, cause I would, just so I could drive. And it's like, thank God I didn't hurt anyone, you know, thank God. And, you know, so that's what I did. I don't have any delusion that I wouldn't start off right where I left off because that's been my experience. You know, there's once in a while I see someone that goes out back out and drinking and, does the right about face and they're cool. And I'm like, all right, that's cool, man. You know, but for as long as I've been around living in the same city that I grew up in, it usually doesn't work out that way. You know, it's like, it usually works out where jails, institutions are death. They either end up back in rehab, they go to fucking jail or they die. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately that's, that's, in my experience way more than yeah I just decided I don't want to drink anymore I'm cool alright cool good you know if you're really if you have a drink and look dude I don't have any judgment on what you know if someone's an alcoholic or heavy drinker or fucking drinks and throws up once in a while and you know whatever I don't yeah. care you know like you know you th- if you think you're alcoholic then I don't know maybe you are like that's cool. If you want some help, I'll help you. You know, if you don't, that's cool. I'll still talk to you. Yeah, I'll get, you want to get a burger? Cool. Let's get a burger. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, you there's, know, there's like, guys that come in and go out and I'm still, you know, I still hang with them. Some of them are, you know, my best friends. It's, it's, it's the journey and I'm here. It's like you said, man, there's no magic wand that I'm going to wave, but I can, I can just always be there as a friend and as a, as a representative of sobriety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to try doing it? you know, different than, well, I, that's how I did it. So I'll show you how. Exactly. 
Any Dave Kushner, you're the man. Any anything else? Anything you want to plug or any anything? You know, I really appreciate the time. Uh, no, nah, dude, I got nothing right now. I'm just, you know, got a few. You got you got it all, bro. Come on. <laughs> Living the dream, bro. Yeah. No, you know, like uh, just uh, you know, got a few jobs in the works. This, this uh, I have a company called Monkey Mind Music Group, and it's just me and a buddy of mine that. You know, we compose for TV and film, and I got you know really. We're start. I'm starting the the last season of Episode Family with Bill Burr. Uh, that starts. We start doing the music next month, and that's it. It's, it's great stuff, dude. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, man, and, and I love the the KFC story. <laughs> you know, glad you're still alive. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Podcast.